Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin, and my co-host and producer extraordinaire is Will Lentz. And we are excited to be joined today by Amy Jo Goddard to talk all about her books, Sexual Empowerment and the Nine Ways that You Can Get into Your Own Empowerment, uh, her incredible documentary discussing unethical practices that medical schools use in order to teach pelvic exams, and so much more. Uh, but before we get to that, I do just want to send so much love and um, health and safety to everyone out there listening. I am so grateful that you're listening and tuning in. Uh, I think it's the most important thing to cultivate community um, during these crazy and tumultuous times. And I hope that we can bring a little bit of joy and maybe some new information or just personal stories um, that give you some some boost in your day. We have so many episodes, so um, we'd love for you to tune in and to, to be a part of your quarantine <laughs> quarantine day and routine. Um, yeah, I'm so excited to be able to do this intro, and unfortunately, uh, Will and I can't be together because we are practicing social distancing or cocooning, um, but uh, it is a joy to, to even be able to do this at all and to continue to produce content and, and to put stuff out there that we're proud of. So thank you for tuning in. And um, yeah, Amy Jo is absolutely wonderful. She's such a bright light and she's even been hosting these um, Zoom seminars every single day uh, called The Cocoon and bringing on different speakers to illuminate and motivate and, and so – yeah, she's just a joy, and I feel really inspired by her, and I'm I'm really inspired by this interview uh, that we did before. Obviously, any of this was um, greatly impacting our lives, so sorry if we don't mention that. Um, but she is wonderful, and her information is so exciting and cool and um, engaging. So please, please, please enjoy. I'm feeling yummy head to toe. You see me. Welcome to Finding My Yum. I'm so excited. Today we have Amy Jo Goddard here. Who Did I say that right? Yeah. Oh, thank God. Yeah, you got um, it. <laughs> uh, she is a sexual empowerment educator, author, and filmmaker. And I'm so excited because we are going to talk about her upcoming documentary, um, Firewoman Retreat, and uh, women's empowerment in general. Um, so thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And I love getting to do in-person podcasts. It's yes, so much more right? fun to get to... Be with somebody yeah, across the table. I know. Sipping I know. my water. Yes. That very <laughs> large water and lovely straw. Um, Got to hydrate. Yeah, exactly. It's good for the yoni. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. Um, well, I want to launch in into the documentary specifically, but I would like to just um, sort of introduce like how you got into this work I know you've been doing it for like 20 plus years so it's ebbed and flowed and evolved uh I imagine quite a bit um but yeah like where are you from and and what was like was there something that really got you interested in getting into the sexuality space and this empowerment position for women oh yeah it was all my own confusion <laughs> and you know, <laughs> troubled youth um <laughs> I mean, I just, I went through so much growing up as a, um, as a queer kid that didn't know I was queer, just, you know, growing up with like 
single parent family with military dad. Oh, wow. Who never talked about anything sexually related. I never, you know, so we moved a lot. I went to three different high schools. I didn't get any sex education. I mean, it was like literally ground zero. Absolutely none? I got zero. Wow. Because one school would be, oh, you know, it's like I read the Scarlet Letter three times, but, you know, (laughs) I got like no sex ed. Right. So, yeah, uh, just because, you know, the school system's, or, totally. you know, do things in different time and whatever. I think I even got out of health class because I was like, I'm healthy. I don't need health <laughs> class in one of my schools. That's probably where they would have done some kind of sex ed. Sure. It might have been horrible because it was the late 80s. But, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. um, now everybody knows how old I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I went to college and I got really politically activated around feminism and around women's bodies. And we were fighting all the same damn fights were fighting right now. Yep. I mean, it was the same conversations. The language was a little bit different and certainly the consciousness has grown. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was in college during, um, what's his name? H W Bush. Is it? I, I always get the, I always All just want to say right, George yeah. Bush senior and people are like, it's H W Bush. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, that dude, you know, I grew up in the Reagan years, you know, yeah. my teens and then yeah, it was George Bush and, um, sidebar. I went to get stamps today and they had, G.W. Bush forever stamps. And I was like, who the fuck is buying this right now? <laughs> like, who was like, I want to put this on my mail. The first person who sends me something with <laughs> stamps. But I was just like, I don't understand who this is marketing what? for. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, no. Important sidebar. This is, this is interesting. Yeah. Bring back Jimi Hendrix, man. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we were talking about reproductive health. We were talking about abortion, you know, like there was a huge battle going on in that administration around abortion rights. That's, you know, the gag rule got implemented during that time. So, which we're still reaping the repercussions of today. Um, And there was a huge problem, shock, with sexual assault on our campus. So crazy. (laughs) I know. It's crazy. It's so unusual. Um, So, yeah, so I got really politicized and also just went through my own sexual empowerment at that time. I got the first sex education I'd ever had in my life. I read the only textbook I've ever read cover to cover in my (laughs) life, which was the Masters and Johnson's Human Sexuality text. And and it just, you know, I had orgasms for the first time, even though I'd had boyfriends, I'd been having sex for years. And, you know, so a lot of things changed for me. And I really came into my own voice and my own power. And I knew I wanted to empower women and girls in particular. Yeah. And then finally one day it sort of like hit me like a ton of bricks. So, you know, you have those moments in your life where you're like, yep. I was <laughs> like, changes. oh my God. Like I had applied to a women's studies program that like one of the best ones in the country for a master's degree, uh, master's program. And they denied me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like the best I feminist. How could tool. you... <laughs> I didn't have their prereqs or whatever the hell it was. So, yeah. So then that made me kind of have to pause and say, well, what is it I was doing that for? And I oh. realized sexuality really was the doorway. So then th- then it was like fast track, went to New York, went to NYU, did a master's degree in human sexuality education. And what does that look like? Started doing my work. What does a master's in human sexuality look like? I imagine it's evolved, but I'm just curious because I know even with like therapy and et cetera, like their focus on sex is so small. So I'm just curious in a uh, institution that's been around for a long time, you know, as a, a university, what even does that look like? Does it foster a lot of 
conversations. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I think it depends who's running the program and sure. what the focus of the program is. I mean, there were only three programs in the country at the time. Sure. So it was, yeah. I either go to the Kinsey Institute at Indiana, which I did not, I was not real keen on Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> or I went to Philly, to UPenn, or I went to NYU, and I, I wanted to go to New York, and I got in and went. So, but yeah, I think, you know, today there's so many more programs that didn't exist then. There, there's a lot of gender and sexuality mm. programs where there's a lot of focus on gender conversations in a deeper way. There's so much literature in the last 20 years, of course, around gender that has just totally blown up our ideas about gender, and yeah. that's evolving still. Um, there are some programs, like the one up at Columbia that really focuses more on the human rights aspects yeah. of sexuality. So, and then cool. there's programs that focus more on education or more on therapy. And so um, NYU was in the school of education. Like the focus oh, really okay. was on how to be a good educator, how to write curricula, how to, you know, of course we had to take the your, your standard research courses and all that. Right. And then it was also kind of make your own program and figure out the things you wanted. And so I knew I wanted to take a lot of therapy classes mm. just because, not because I wanted to do therapy, but because I knew that was just going to go with the territory. Sure, right. <laughs> so, yeah, being so able to yeah. hold space. And, and then I took, you know, like ceramics and, and <laughs> yeah, sculpture and things like sure. that in my yeah, other free time. Yeah, things that feed your soul. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, well, let's jump into this amazing documentary that you have coming out hopefully very soon. Um, so it's called At Your Cervix, um, <laughs> which makes me giggle in like the best way possible. <laughs> um, so, can, yeah, just let's launch in and, and, and briefly describe or at length describe what it is about and um because it's been quite a venture a, a long venture that you've been working on yeah right? it yeah. has it's been a lot of years so I lived in New York for almost 20 years and um when I was there I was always piecing together my income because it was like teaching part-time in colleges over here sure. um consulting trainer over here writing curricula for an organization over here training young people over here you know sure. so it was always sort of a lot of different things one of the things that I did once I heard about it I was just like oh my god I must do this work how do I get to do this yeah was that I went into medical schools as a um, as a teacher and taught usually second year medical students, how to do a pelvic exam in a clinical setting. So we would work, um, there was this whole group of women doing that work in New York, um, a really amazing group of women, fairly politicized also. Um, and so we would team teach, usually two teachers to three students in a session, sometimes four students. Can I just interrupt <clears throat> for a second? When you say politicized, what, mm -hmm. what exactly does that mean? That we had a political lens okay. on why the work was important. Got it. You know, it wasn't just like a part-time gig that we were doing after work or something. Got it. You know? um, like the, it was meaningful. And so I think that's why the film came up, you know, I think those of us that were more politicized um, really wanted to make the film because we felt like this is work nobody knows is happening. Like we are going into medical schools, we are working in clinical settings, we are using our own bodies to teach, um, we are highly trained. So, uh, and then so students get to practice their pelvic exam on a trained teacher who is also their patient for the first time. Wow. Which is a hell of a lot better than learning on a patient for yeah. the first time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as you can imagine. So, How did you facilitate even starting that kind of, like, was that a new 
way of teaching this method at that time too? No, the work started in the 70s actually. Okay. And so we decided we really wanted to make a film about that work. Um, we're called Gynecological Se Teaching Associates. Oh, okay. um, I had read a, a Carol Queen uh, essay in her book, Real Live Nude Girl, about the work. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did that work for 10 years and I estimate I've probably had a thousand pelvic exams for the purposes of education, Amazing. um, for students. And a pelvic exam to also just clarify, especially for maybe male bodied people is what does it like to take me through like what you would actually show a f training physician? Like what does well, that look like? There are five <laughs> parts to the pelvic exam. Thank you. Yes. You <laughs> me. Yes. I would like to know because even like I've had a pelvic exam and I don't know what these five parts are. Will well, and attention. sadly often all five don't often get done. But sure. yeah, I mean there, there's, there's a visual inspection, which is also a, an opportunity to educate a patient, which many providers don't do. They just sort of like get in there. They've got their tools out, sure. you know, and it's sort of like quick and done. So um, we definitely, definitely taught from a perspective of you get to educate your patient. You get got to it. empower them around their body. So what we taught was ideal. We also taught providers to use mirrors to, to offer the mirror to the patient so the patient can see what's happening to their genitals Whoa. while they're being poked and prodded and yeah, <laughs> you know, of examined. Um, and which also engages the patient more in the process. Of so course. we did a lot of things. So it wasn't just teaching the technical parts of the exam, it was also teaching the communication, how to touch a body, how to be respectful, how to get consent, how to get in, you know, how to create partnership really with a patient. So, yeah. I mean, that's so much what I love about the work. It's just, I mean, I, the first time I went and observed a session, which is the first step in becoming a GTA, I was like, oh my God, like these women are Amazon. You yeah. know, they just were like Amazon up on that table and just like totally in control, right? totally owning the room, knew what to do. You know, you've got fumbling, nervous anxious students sure, they're like, like sometimes they'll <laughs> hold the speculum it literally will sit there like rattling because they're <laughs> so nervous yeah, it's, it's it's so tender and precious um some of them have never seen a vulva before like this is the first time yeah. so you know medical students are young uh for the most part so um yeah so then then there are digital exams using fingers where there's different parts that are being checked there's glands that are being checked you're checking ovaries in a bimanual exam where you're kind of sweeping across the abdomen and then, of course, there's the speculum exam. Um, uh, most people find the speculum really harrowing, and it doesn't need to be that way. And I think it, it people um, people associate the speculum with pain because it's often not used well. But it you it's know, a metal device that's inserted yeah, to open yeah, exactly. the vaginal canal, so you can see into the cervix. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's got two bills that that open up, and so then when you when you open up the vaginal walls, you can see to the cervix, which is then when they do like the Pap smear, they get all the the swabs for the tests and and things like that. STIs, whatever you want to test for. So. Um, so yeah, we taught them how to do all of that, and um, and, and then also anal exams, which you know rectal exams, which people don't talk about. No, they don't, and often don't get. Um, but that's actually how you access the backside of the uterus. So if you want to do a full examination of the uterus, you're actually also going to do a rectal exam. Is when would you do? I've never had an anal exam. Is yeah. there a particular? Is it standard? Should it be standard in order to check the health of the uterus, or is there a particular reason why you would be? Um, utilizing that exam? It's debated. You know, we've, we felt that it was really important for them to learn that. Sure. So we always taught it as a standard part of, of 
our teaching. I think a lot of providers don't do it unless unless there's a complaint. Okay. Um, so sometimes it has to do with whether there's a complaint. But the truth is that if you're not examining the back portion of the uterus, there could be something growing on it that you wouldn't know about if you're not examining there. Interesting. So. And an ultrasound, if you've had an ultrasound, that doesn't get there, I would imagine. If it's a transvaginal ultrasound, can you see that far? You... I can't. I don't know. That I can answer that okay. question. Actually, just so curious. I'm not I don't know. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've had I mean, I've had several ultrasounds, yeah. but yeah. I mean, I think I think generally they can see most of the cavity, okay. but I think that probably also varries. Yeah, based I'm just on thinking the back side. It's like the back like side of the moon. <laughs> it's so <laughs> like far away. <laughs> it's actually not because um. you know in sex people kind of miss sometimes, yeah. <laughs> end up in the wrong place. <laughs> Just saying. Or the right place. Um, <laughs> or the very right yeah. place. Yeah. Uh, I am curious, Did was there any discussion about um, the difference of appearance of vulvas and labia and like how vaginas look? Because oh, yeah. I feel like there's one kind really presented and there's an array of different options. Yeah. No, I mean, that's always been a huge, important part of all the work I do. I mean, yeah. when I was teaching in college, I would always bring in the drawings from Betty Dodson's book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she drew, uh, you know, like 16 drawings uh, of different um, actual people <laughs> and their vulvas. So real vulvas. And, um, and they just show such a range. And so I always love that. I always, no matter what class I'm teaching, I bring that in. And so, yeah, the, the, the GTA work was another opportunity to do that. Because students would always be working with two different teachers. So they're going to cool. see two different anatomies. Yeah. Um, they're only going to examine one, but they're going to see both. They're all observing right. in the session. So, um, so that was always helpful. And we also would try to be mindful of maybe women of different ages, women that had different kinds of cervixes teaching sure. together, um, women of color also teaching, and you know, really trying to mix it up so that they're they're really seeing different anatomies. Um, uh, my cousin is like my. I absolutely love her and she's queer and fabulous and my guiding light in so many aspects of this. And she talked specifically about uh, language utilized of a gynecologist in talking about the type of sex that a person is having or their gender identity mm -hmm. or sexual preference. Was that a part of the conversation too about how to begin that conversation so that like you know safety or whatever can be discussed but it doesn't have to force the person to identify themselves or I don't know to get into territory that they don't feel comfortable with or at least leave space so that they can express themselves in the way that a gender binary doesn't necessarily allow them to do we sense? touched on um, taking the sexual history because that's, of course, always what you would start right. with. But we didn't have enough time. I mean, okay. that's its own training. And sure, I've, done, sure. I've done full day trainings on that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think sexual history taking is really its own skill that, that they need to learn, whether they're learning it from people who have... Um, sort of progressive and advanced knowledge about sure, <laughs> how sure. to talk about gender is questionable, but I think things are changing. I think that more conversations that are um, thinking more outside of the box and, and more inclusive are definitely happening. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, medical schools are a place where um, a lot of things are left out. And that was actually when I went to grad school, that was one of my goals. I knew I wanted to work mm. with youth. I knew I wanted to empower women and I knew that I also wanted to work with medical providers because they so lack in their knowledge about sexuality um and I get it like there's a billion things they have to learn about in med school and you know but sure. you know at the end of the day like 
that's the place where most people are going to ask sexual questions. Right. They're going to say, right. well, at least I could ask my doctor. And yeah, if doctors don't know how to answer those questions or at least help point them in the right direction, that's problem. That's a problem. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so this sort of was in line with that. So I did that work for 10 years, but as we started to work on the film, we realized that a lot of students were learning in other ways. And so we expanded the scope of the film to look at a couple of different ways. Specifically that learning pelvic exams. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, one of the ways we ended up having to cut out of the film, which was that a lot of times nurse midwifery students are asked in their programs by instructors to learn on each other, even to be tested on each other. So it's like you're paying a school to go to school there and now suddenly you have to disrobe and show your student colleagues and even your professors your body so that you can be a patient for your student colleague friend. Um, so that also okay. tremendously problematic. Lots of privacy <laughs> issues. Sure. Um, and I think the thing with that practice is that it really did come out of a lot of the midwives that came up through the women's health movement in the 70s who were doing self-exam in groups, um, exploring bodies, empowering themselves around using the speculum themselves. And so I think what happened is when a lot of those midwives then went into institutions and started teaching, they took that with them because for them that had been a very empowering thing. And context is super important. Yeah. So it's a very different thing for us to say, hey, let's get, let's go into, let's just show up in my living room and like look at our cervixes right. together. Wouldn't that be cool? And yeah. everyone is consenting and on board versus you now represent an institution. And um, even if it's presented as optional, it often doesn't feel like that for students. Sure. They, sor- they sort of feel an obligation to do it. So lots of problems with that. We ended up actually having to cut that out of the film, but I think that is still an important thing to talk yeah. about. And I think more and more nursing programs or midwifery programs are looking at the, you know, like the ethics of that. And um, what's the, is the alternative to have uh, people like, yourself come in or the groups you're yeah. talking about so that they don't they can work on other people as opposed to having to utilize their own bodies and also so they can work on people who are trained right <laughs> and who can sure. actually give them useful sure, sure, feedback sure. <laughs> you right. know? totally i mean if you're just yeah. like ah uh, you know i'm just learning too how are right. you actually you know you can say if something hurts but you can't say well here's how you make that adjustment so that it doesn't hurt totally um i understand so yeah so you know gtas are certainly the solution uh in in my opinion and many people's opinion um and there are lots of programs that have gta programs and also use other ways and so the more egregious way students learn is on anesthetized patients they've come in for surgery they've been put under anesthesia there will be students on their care team or who are like on their OBGYN rotation who are then ushered into the room or are just part of the surgery team and they're there and they are asked to do pelvic exams on patients under anesthesia. And um, many, more often than not, I would say it happens without consent, without even any knowledge. Um, so we've had, you know, we've inter- I've interviewed a lot of people over the years I've been working on this documentary. And I've interviewed many students who have talked about doing this and how it was just sort of worked into the process like it was normal. But there was never any discussion of consent. And so then the assumption is, well, I guess... Certainly, this patient must have consented. You know, sure. I wouldn't be asked to do I something here. violating. Um, and then other students have told us they were they were specifically asked to 
make sure you go in and just introduce yourself before the exam, but before the surgery, um, but not to say anything explicit about what their role was going to be. So, um, you know, of course, if you're getting a gynecological surgery, your surgeon would do a confirming exam, um, but that doesn't mean that you're going to have two or three, you know, exams because you have students there or more uh, because you have students there who are there to learn. So, right. So is this surgery across the board then? Anything where you have to go under anesthesia was open potentially for, is open potentially for this training aspect? At first, you know, we had people within medicine that said, well, that would only happen under in GYN surgery, right? Where there's something happening in that part of the body. Um, otherwise that, you know, that, that would, that would indicate collusion between departments, which would seem um, really uh, egregious. Um, but I have interviewed many, many patients who, um, you know, we have one patient story in the film. She was in for exploratory knee surgery and she woke up with gauze and iodine on her vulva. She was like, why is that there? We weren't dealing with my vulva today. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Um, oh my God. What happened then? She actually... Um, she caught wind of this practice. I think it might have even been because of the film because we've been around talking about this for a long time. And she ended up calling the facility to find out, like, was my body used for this? Did, you know, were students practicing on me? Yeah. And they actually confirmed it and said yes, um, which is surprising. That is um, surprising. I think, and, but again, I think that shows how invisible it was. Like, they didn't see that this would even be an issue. Um, I think more and more it's being talked about. There's been more and more articles coming out. There was a recent New York Times article about it. Um, so I think people are getting a little more hip to the fact that, I don't know, maybe people might have a problem with that. Maybe they might sure. not like that. Um, I don't know. We're talking about consent a little bit more <laughs> these right, days. Right, absolutely. Maybe we might consider some new consent practices. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. There's only 10 states in the United States that have specific laws banning the practice. So we get to make laws in all 50. And that's not the Is only California one of thing. Them? California was the first. Um, but I can also say I've talked to people who went to medical school since then in California who've said, I did it too. So laws are one level, one, or one layer of what's important because it does give a patient recourse. And it does also send a very clear message to institutions that they need to take this issue seriously. Yeah. Um, and there has to be oversight. There has to be processes within medical institutions where student trainees are there um, about how they address consent, about how they model that for students, about how the students identify who they are and what their role is. I mean, there, there's been a lot of debate over the years of students introducing themselves as, I'm a student doctor. And what has been found in research is patients hear doctor. Patients don't hear student. Sure. They, they don't know what that means. Sure. Um, so actually introducing themselves very specifically as a medical student is important. Um, so there's, there's a lot of layers to, I think, what needs to happen. And there are more and more students that are speaking up about this um, who realize that it's wrong. And, uh, you know, I think that's actually really the best line of defense. It's like really the students that can speak up, but it has to feel safe for them to do so. 
And that's very, very hard to do in a medical institution where you do what you're told. Right, exactly. Um, Especially if it's part of the curriculum and you're doing rotations and you Mm -hmm. need to get on to the next one and learn the Mm -hmm. critical skill. And if that's the only time that you get to see even a pelvic exam or do one, Mm -hmm. like you're... You ha- at least you have to take it right there's like so many i don't know circuitous mer- like areas in your brain which you can justify what's happening and right well doing. i have to learn somehow and we do hear right. that from people like well we have to learn somehow right right you get well, to do I- that with trained trained teachers and also with consenting wide awake patients right who can tell you if you're hurting them right <laughs> because love- you can also hurt someone when they're under anesthesia and not know that you're hurting them right and we've heard stories of that people coming out of surgery and being like why is my vagina hurt? <laughs> That's weird. You know, there was one woman that was in for a nasal surgery who told me her vagina hurt after her surgery. And um, <laughs> That's like ludicrous. Like it's ludicrous that this could even... I, I, I like that this is a thing that's happening that nobody even thought about. I mean, I, we the consent is the theme of 2020 for this podcast, particularly. And I, the more that we talk about, the more I keep coming back to like it wasn't vocabulary that I was used to until I think a couple years ago, maybe even sooner. And so even things like on my body or things that, you know, I've realized where I'm like, why, why don't, why isn't consent talked about like how are these things going so under the radar that we just have no peripheral vision that like this is insane like you're doing something insane (laughs) with people who are unconscious like we have such like that I I feel like when I was taught about like sexual assault and rape right like one of the big things was like doing something to somebody unconscious was like one of like along with violent rape was like two of the big things that I heard about in undergrad but yet in medical school we are actively facilitating people doing these type of things under the guise of education Bingo. (laughs) Exactly. It's so nuts. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like what I said to you when we were talking before. Medical providers are fish in a fishbowl. They do not see the water. They're like, this is how we've always done it. You know, we're just passing down the thing we've learned. They don't necessarily see it. You know, there was an article recently and then there was an op-ed that came out where, you know, like two Yale OBGYNs are defending the practice. And by the way, Connecticut has not been able to pass a law. And it's and what, ostensibly because of pushback and what is from medical defense? institutions. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that louder. We don't have to like, <clears throat> we can just say Yale. Um, what, what is the defense? Is the primarily like, this is just a practice and we don't know how else we don't have any, any other way to do it, which is false. I think there's a variety of things they'll say. One is, um, well, I mean, patients just should know if they're coming to a teaching hospital, students are going to learn on them. So that's one, which, you know, we can, we can just break that down. <laughs> we can slice that up so many different ways and how problematic that is because, yeah, let's look at which patients are then also, you know, it's, it's always the most disenfranchised, the poorest patients sure. that are going to be most at risk. Sure. So, so that's one piece. And the truth is nobody knows what's a teaching hospital, what's not. You go wherever your, your health insurance sends you. There are students learning in so many different kinds of facilities. People don't get that. Yeah. People don't know that a short white coat means they're a student versus a long white coat, which means they're a doctor. I didn't know that. People Both don't of my know parents that. Make a doctors. note. Make a note. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. So, so there's just lots of things about the system that I think doctors assume people know, and, and we don't. Um, and then I think there's the defense of, you know, well, if we ask, they might say no. <laughs> Which I love! There you go! <laughs> Rich... Which like anything we do in life where like the answer is probably going to be no. So we don't ask. Right. Don't so maybe do. You, maybe you probably shouldn't <laughs> be doing that. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, there has been research. That's actually bullshit because there has been research that shows that when patients are asked, 72% of the time they'll say yes. Oh, wow. 79% of the time they'll say yes if it's a female. So wow. that doesn't even hold water. It's not, there's not a shortage of patients who are willing to be altruistic and, and help students learn. People do, are very altruistic. They want students to learn, but they want to be asked. Sure. And they get to say, how many students? Only one. I want to meet the student first. I want to be awake for it. Like we get to, you know, right. we have get to set our boundaries and have some agency over how that goes. So yeah, and then I think just sort of the, um, oh, but it's so much more work to spend time getting consent, you know, sort of like that line of thought which is just like okay sure right <laughs> the case in point this <laughs> is the problem um is there does this exist for men there is evidence that it does we have that's beyond the scope of what we have done in our research and in the film but okay. i have definitely heard of cases of students practicing uh prostate exams yeah that's yeah, what I on men. Curious. So there's no, you know, or, yeah, there's no reason to think that that wouldn't also be happening. Although I do think that in a culture that devalues the vagina sure. and devalues women and thinks that um, women should do all kinds of unpaid labor, that it falls that this would be happening. Well, and that was sort of what popped into my head of, you know, the way that we treat women's bodies um, historically and currently um, that there would be a discrepancy, but I was curious if it does, it, it would make sense. Also, are there people um, like GTAs that do then do prostate? Um, yes. Okay. Yep. That, uh, Guta's uh, gastro, what is it? Uro, genital, urethral, urethral, I can't say it. <laughs> Guta's. Guta's. <laughs> yeah, teaching associates. Perfect. Yeah. So there's, a, there's, there's groups of men. Um, male-bodied people that do the work and also just do just amazing work with students. I yeah. mean, the students leave GTA sessions lit up. Yeah. Because they're like, oh my, like they learn so much. They get to learn from someone who is not going to shame them, who is going to really guide them, who's going to correct them so that they don't have to be freaking out that they're hurting somebody, which anybody would be dealing with their sensitive body parts for the first time, yeah. their genitals or... Um, orifices. So yeah, I mean, the students really walk away just like really lit up. And I used to see that a lot with the male sessions too. We would often be teaching in the same, um, like oh, corridors cool. and things. And so the men would be going in for their sessions. We'd be going in for ours. And so. like, I almost feel like I would like this in my own, like in sex education, like how cool would it be to get an actual, you know, visual of like, this is what it looks like. Also, there's nothing scary or shameful about having this body part yes. and like we can dispel a lot of what goes on in our heads about like putting it in the corner and you know behind closed doors um which sort of brings me to so you have a firewoman retreat right that's in 
May yeah. that f- focuses on female empowerment. Yeah, I mean, I teach sexuality. Uh, In you general. Know, I, don't, I don't work as a GTA actively anymore. We are going to be training more GTAs oh, and, cool. and doing more trainings for people. So you will get to do that at some point. I will let you know. Um, oh, I would love that. Yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, that's definitely in the works. Yeah. Um, yeah, but my main work really is doing sexual empowerment work with women and I do that through a lot of in-depth programs both virtual and in person and then I do fire women retreat every year um, I have a book called women on fire nine elements to wake up your erotic energy personal power and sexual intelligence so I wrote that based on the many years of work I've done with women and and seeing like what are the doorways into their empowerment what are the pieces that that everybody needs and the conversations I was having over and over and so that was really how that framework was was born and then firewoman retreat came out of that um so I've done it three years now in California and now I'm taking it to New York this year so I'm super excited about that I lived in New York for a lot of years I'm in California now so um so I'm really, yeah, it's, 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 it's like my favorite thing I do because it's sort of like all the things. Like, like we do a lot of deep work around healing and education, experiential education work by day. And then we do these sort of fantastical, amazing events at night, which are very like play-oriented, sacred theater. Um, we do a sexual archetype ritual where um, I invite in a bunch of um, amazing uh, priestesses, teachers, space holders who can hold the space of about a dozen different sexual archetypes. And then oh, cool. the participants get to be led through a process with those archetypes where they get to learn learn about them and also interact with them as real beings, not just as an idea. So it's pretty amazing. What does, um, I think I'm having trouble figuring like tangibly what that means and looks like. Yeah, it, it would. It's. It's. I've never seen anything like it. Quite. Quite like it. So <laughs> that that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, the archetypes we explore are like every. You know, if you think about sexual archetypes that are in our culture, you know, it's like everything from, of course, like virgin, mm-hmm. mother, whore, prostitute, uh, sex worker, whatever language you want to use, um, to the prude. You know, the slut, the um, the wild woman, the femme fatale, the butch. Um, the dominatrix, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, the goddess. So we we bring in um, the damsel princess. That's a big one. I think oh, women yeah. really need to girl. look at. Well, I actually think that there's a lot of different versions of that damsel sure. princess. And I think that a lot of women, I think particularly white women are really taught to be that. Uh, yes. Hello. Taught to be that. Damsel like, that, like, party Yeah, that, it's, that you got to find a man to take <laughs> care of you, that um, you should be reliant on someone else for your sexual pleasure, that, um, you know, that you're not going to be able to take care of yourself, that, um, yeah, all those things. Yeah. So, so that's a big one. But, and then also victim, I would say, is a really big one because mm-hmm. we all have a victim part in ourselves. Sure. We've all experienced some kind of victimization in our lives. I mean, everybody has. Yeah. So it's, it's looking at how are those pieces living in us and what, what do we want to bring in more of, mm. um, what pieces need to be healed or what, you know, which ones do we need to like shift our ideas about? So we're not living out some story that's not our story. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a really amazing, empowering event. And I think, um, the women, it's different every time I've been doing it sure. for 10 years. This will be my 11th year doing it. And, um, every time it's like something, 
you know, it's different because yeah, I have different, different actors group, and different people each time, vibe. different groups. And so, yeah, it's sort of depending on what pe- what is up for people, what they want to explore. Um, the wife, we do the wife. So, yeah, we pick a dozen of them. There's so many more than sure. what we can do. <laughs> sure. um, we added the empowered submissive uh, two years ago, which was a really good one to add. Um, and so is this playing on the erotic skills that we sort of touched on of interacting in a consensual way with these archetypes to explore how they operate in terms of like connection and facilitating like that interaction or it's more facilitating (laughs) dialogue and engagement with them and so we do that and then we also do an erotic carnival where uh, a lot of different teachers will come in and, and it's, we set it up like a carnival. Like there's carnival rides and we literally give out carnival tickets and we're like, okay, go make your own adventure. You know, over here you can learn about lap dancing. Got it. You know, over here you can learn about how to work a cock. Over here you can learn about how to work a yoni. Over here you can learn about how to dirty talk or how to massage, you know, erotic massage. or Whoa, you know. So we have a whole range of skills, you know, spanking, Flogging, uh, rope. I mean, we've had like people teach about so many different things. Cool. So that is so fun. And I love it because, yeah, it's just what you said a minute ago, that that there are so few spaces mm-hmm. where we can just go and actually try a thing on. Right. Where it's not an erotic context. I'm not having sex with you, right? But like you can try it here, try, hold this flogger. Let me show you how it works. Okay, here, go ahead. You can try this on me. Yeah. Or I can try it on you. You can see how it feels, you know? So it's like the, like a tangible experience of something to be like, do I like that? Do I not like that? Is that something I want to explore? Because it can feel so scary. And, and especially when you've got a partner, you're trying to learn a new thing with. And so then there's all the dynamics of like, oh, I've got to please my partner. Or what if I get this wrong? I feel insecure. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just like all of that pressure gets removed because they're just at this event. You know, the event is for women and non-binary folks that were assigned female at birth. So, you know, you're there with other people that are there to learn. And it's not it's not a play party. It's not a sex party. Right. It's an opportunity to just really be guided by skilled teachers. So, but in an erotic context sure. that is sexy and fun that you get to, you know, ma- like I said, make your own adventure. And, um, and then you get to bring things back. Yeah. To whoever you're bringing them <laughs> yeah, back to. And then or, negotiate with the partner. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it. I tried this fun yes. thing at the retreat. I want to try with you. So, Yeah. So I love that. I love getting to create those kinds of play spaces for people. Yeah, that's really cool. I've I've never heard of anything like that. Because sometimes I look at, like, I've been to play parties and that's how I go into them now is mm-hmm. like, or from the beginning of like, this is a place to explore. But, you know, there is certain pressures there and there is more visibility and the space is held in a particular way. But there's so many people, people are drinking potentially or doing other substances so it's like this sort of fluid uh fluctuating environment where like if you i don't know get to uh, do explore those things in such safety what a gift yeah 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 it's it's far too rare um so yeah come to fire one retreat <laughs> do yeah <it> there. yeah <laughs> um I, I would like to just touch on 
I know that the book exists and I would love people to read it and buy it. Um, but if you can sort of touch on what the nine steps are, um, if you would feel comfortable doing that, I would like to hear. Like, no, I don't ever <laughs> like to talk about what I, I, I'm done with that thing. Yes, of course. Actually, I meant to bring a copy. It was so exciting. This morning, I got home because I've been away this week and I was going through my mail this morning and copies of Women on Fire in Korean arrived. Oh my God! Yes. Oh my God, congratulations! Um, which actually is Hangun, right? The the alphabet is Hangun. Cool. So just getting to see my book and the, like, I can't read it. It's like, wow, this yeah. is wild. That's so, amazing. Congrats. Yes. So we are getting to share the sexual empowerment gospel with Korean women. I am so excited. Cool. Yeah. Or Koreans. I mean, anyone can read the book. Actually, I did the audio of the book and I sat in, you know, a recording studio, a very small recording studio with an audio engineer who was a guy, like surfer guy, cool, sweet surfer guy, Hi. who's been doing it forever. He's sure. like a rock and roller and all the things. <laughs> and, um, you know, for four days reading my book. And at the end of it, he was like, I really learned a lot from that. Oh, that's so Thank cool. so much. That was so great. <laughs> so I love when men read it. Don't, don't, uh, all genders, don't let the, don't let the title fool you. But, um, yeah, they're not steps sure. because steps is like a uh, linear or something. So I call them elements. Got it. And part of part of why I called them, part of the way I designed it was that I wanted there to be a lot of entryways for people. So oh. I think when people are like, oh, I have issues with my sexuality, but it feels like this big thing, this big blob of stuff, and I don't know kind of how to start. So I wanted there to be a lot of doorways into the work. Oh, I and love so that. so I think people have different doorways. So the elements are those doorways. Um, it, you know, it's voice, um, both looking at the internal and external voice, how to negotiate, how to get what you want, how to figure out what you want, how you talking to yourself, you know, all of the things yeah. around voice. I always start with that when I teach it. Um, and I, I, I teach these elements to as well in, 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 an, in a virtual program. Um, so I always start with that just because people have so much stuff around voice yeah. and, and that gets to open up so many things and it's a practice. So then I really get to continue to work with people in that over the whole time. Sure. Um, but yeah, then it's release. What do you need to release in order to make room for what you want to bring in? Mm. Um, and there's a lot of things people need to release about sex and sexuality. Um, certainly it could be shame or guilt or trauma. It could also be, you know, ideal expectations, um, problematic belief systems, you know, all sure. kinds of things that yeah. people need to release. Um, it's emotion, uh, you know, the connections between emotion and sexuality, how we're playing those out, how are we being emotionally powerful or not. Um, obviously, it's the body, so really, you know, learning about our bodies, but then also being able to be critical about you know, cultural ideas about the body. Sure. Like I know you were talking about menstruation earlier. Yeah. Um, well, I think this that part has been coming up a lot because I, I have been having sex with a new partner and overwhelmingly like so much emotion has come up over and over and I haven't interacted with somebody who can hold space in such a beautiful way that like both of us have experienced like, oh, <laughs> we don't like it doesn't have to be just euphoria right it's like this full encompassing experience that has like ups and downs and meanders and then you know like there isn't like this linear pathway and yeah, particularly exactly. around menstruation like for the first time we're having we tried to have sex when I was on my period and I mean massive amounts of shame and guilt and insecurity came up where 
it is not like I am almost a 30 year old human being. And the fact that like and I've had period sex before, but the fact that like those linger mm. and it came up in such a big way because he can hold space so well that it, I felt free to express it and sort of let it go a little bit a tiny bit in that moment like yes girl have yeah, a crygasm I know right <laughs> but <laughs> I crygasm is that what you said <laughs> yeah um yeah but that like what a beautiful thing to teach that those things can go hand in hand and it doesn't have to be like I don't know this this vision that I always saw growing up of like it has to be fireworks and like that's what sex is it's like oh, yeah. crazy like hyper you know mm-hmm. experience every time and and great that can be a part of it but that there's so much more yeah and I think we all learn that really predictable story of sex yes. you know I mean first of all it's always a heterosexual one of course <laughs> um and it's always like spontaneous desire you know like oh my god he walked in the room and like <laughs> right. you know yeah. their eyes locked and then like cut to bedroom right <laughs> you know <laughs> naked in bed yeah Both. mutual orgasm mutual orgasm within five seconds right <laughs> Swinging from the chandelier, <laughs> earth-shattering, yeah. transcendent. A song just in practice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's it's such an old, tired story, and we don't see quote unquote foreplay in there. And in my first book, Lesbian Sex Secrets for Men, there's a chapter called Foreplay. It's all play because this idea that um, actually that a lot of the things that get women off are relegated to foreplay. Like, really? Uh, yeah. Why is that foreplay? I think it's actually used in a very sexist way, this this term foreplay. Um, oh, I love that. I'm never going to use that word well, again. Well, it's just like it all gets to be play, yeah. you know? Like, what, what do... Because the idea of foreplay makes it sound like there's a main event. Sure. And everything else is just like the, pre- the precursor. It's just like the preamble. Totally. <laughs> it's like... No, this is yeah. this is it. And We're actually here. this We're could be all it. we do today and it would be great. Totally. <laughs> like Yeah. You know, but yeah, so it always ends in like a penis and a vagina. Nothing wrong with penises and vaginas, no. don't get me wrong. And that's not the only thing. And so the idea that like that's always sex, it's always what sex looks like. Th- that's part of why I wrote that book. Um because I really felt like there was a lot that heterosexual folks could learn from queer sex sure. and, and queer approaches to sex because we have less ingrained roles. Right. And I think heterosexuals, that's this one area where we're like a little bit <laughs> like of a head up, you know, it's like we don't have such ingrained roles. I mean, they're there certainly to some degree, but there's more negotiation. There's less assumption of what kind of sex are we going to have? There's more like, what sure. kind of sex do you like to have? Totally. Um, which everybody should be doing. Yeah. Okay, so we did voice, release, emotion, body, body, desire. I mean, which is huge. Yeah. You know, I would say that I get the most questions about desire. People who come to me, um, just a a lot of confusion about desire, a lot of um, pain about desire. Yeah. Um, You know, for some people, it's I've never had desire. What's wrong with me? Or I don't I used to have desire. It went away. What's going on? Uh, I don't know what I desire. I'm very confused about it. Um, and then I think a lot of times it's in like in relationships. Like we have a different kind of desire. We have like a discordant sure. desire happening. What do we do? So I think a lot of issues about desire. Um, and I think people want the magic pill and they want the easy answer. And desire is complex. It's yeah. not. It's just not simple that way. So I think also, you know, being able to get underneath that idea of like, oh, it's supposed to be the spontaneous 
oh my God, I see a hot person and suddenly my body is like turned on and I'm right. ready and like, let's go, yeah. you know, which can happen. Great when that happens. Uh, research shows it doesn't happen as much for women. Uh, our bodies don't, you know, it's like, I think, I think people with penises, it's like, you know, like there's this obvious thing that can happen where it's just like, oh, okay, yeah. hey, let's go. Yeah, <laughs> right? he's ready. <laughs> um, so I think it, it, you know, what, what people tend to have more of is responsive desire, right? There's something that I respond to mm. and it might be that you, I love the way you're caressing my body and I'm like, oh, okay. Like I'm responding to that. It might be that we're responding to some kind of touch or kissing or something sensual, but it might also be like, oh my God, you cooked me dinner and d did all the dishes and put everything away. That's really hot. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm like, is. it's on, it's <laughs> on. You know, or you put the kids to bed. <laughs> Taking notes. Totally. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's figuring out what are the things we respond to. And yeah, people are in a lot of, there's a lot of questions about desire. Sure. Um, yeah, desire, permission. Uh, you know, what do you get to give yourself permission for? Mm. Uh, I think people are holding back a lot and need permission. I think that's actually the biggest thing I do in my work is I give people permission. Totally. Just because they need it from somewhere. Not yeah. from me. They just need it and they get to learn how to give it to themselves. Yeah. And that's the beauty of the work, I think. Um, play uh, is a big one, of course, for people. I think we are we get very serious about sex. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, I'm having this terrible problem in my sex life. I don't <laughs> know what to do. It's horrible. I'm a horrible person. I've done this thing. So yeah, it's um, we're very heavy often about sex. Yeah. We get to lighten up. We get to remember that it's a playground. Right. Um, we can create new playgrounds in it and, um, and let ourselves be more free in it. You know, I think that really is... Um, the goal of the best kinds of play yeah. um, is to allow ourselves to just do whatever we want to do and be messy with it. It's sure. okay. Yeah. You know, sex is funny. Funny things happen. Yeah. Funny sounds. Super funny and smells and smells, all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like <laughs> our body parts are kind of funny looking. Yeah. You know, um, I think they're also beautiful, but <laughs> you know, it's like we get to have more fun with it because yeah. I've heard somewhere sex is supposed to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere. Someone I don't said know that who once. Said that. Yeah. <laughs> it got buried down <laughs> real deep. But. Yeah. I mean, it can feel like that, right? People yeah. are just like, oh my gosh, so much oppression <laughs> around sex. And, yeah. you know, and that comes from a real place. So we get to totally. heal that and be more playful. Um, home, which is probably my, my favorite chapter in the book. And it's really brings all of the other elements together. Um, and it's really about like, what does it mean to be at home in myself? Mm. What does it mean to be at home in my own body and to be confident in my own sexuality and my own desires and to go for the things I want and to not be constantly leaving myself in relationships and in sex. And I think that wow. most people have relationships that way. They're not home. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm over there controlling you or I'm over there people pleasing to make sure that you're going to like me and not go away. Yeah. Like there's all these ways we leave ourselves. And so, um, so that's about like coming home, like really what is a, a homecoming in terms of our sex, our, our sex lives and our bodies and, and our desires and all of that. How much nicer would the world be if we all just came home? I think all war would end. I think if we every. Were all home. I think yeah, a lot of strife and. I uh, think many many violence. things would cease. Yeah. this is the answer yeah. to world peace. Um, and I really do believe that. I mean, yeah, I me I would love to see it in my lifetime. I don't know that I will, but I'm going to keep trying. Yeah, I'm going to keep doing my <laughs> part. Um, yeah, the last element, of course, is fire. 
So that that's like the juice, the energy, the the fire, the flame, which I think is inside all of us. I think it's the core of who we are. Um, I think we use that energy. It's our creative energy. It's our sexual energy. It's our spiritual energy. Whatever label you want to put on it, all it's all in the same fire pit. Yeah. And. Um, <laughs> And we use it for all the things we create in life. So that might be sex, that might be community, that might be babies, that might be art, that might be music, that might be conversations, that might be businesses. Like we use that energy, it propels us forward and um, it propels us in our creation. And um, that's why the name of the book is Woman on Fire. Amazing. <laughs> uh, where can people find you so that they can keep tabs on this documentary and sign up for your retreat and your workshops or online? Yeah, yeah, yeah please come to Firewoman Retreat. Yeah. Firewoman Retreat is just firewomanretreat.com. You can find all my juicy things and get my weekly love letters and videos uh, if you uh, go to amyjogoddard.com. Uh I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes so people know how to spell it. Um, and then if you're interested in finding out more about the film, that is at yourcervixmovie.com. Um, please do join that mailing list so we can keep in touch because uh, it will be coming out this year. And then as we're doing screenings and different things are happening, yeah. we'd love to be in touch with people about that. And yes, come yes, out. yes. Or maybe you want to come train with us as we as we do more cervix trainings. So, yeah, I'm on all the socials. You can find uh, not all of them, but <laughs> that would be exhausting. <laughs> um, you can find me on the Facebook and the Twitter and I am sexual empowerment on Instagram. Cool. So. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. This is delightful. Thank so you for Thank you. Um, sharing time and, and, and being able to put it into your busy schedule. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much. You are so yeah. welcome. More period sex, please. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yay. It smells good, tastes good. It's all good, you guys. <laughs> Find your yum. It's all good. It gets yum. to be delicious. Yeah. Oh, boy. Woohoo. I love that. Will, you did the woohoo on your own last week without my prompting. That just brings so much joy to my heart. Um, <laughs> please follow Amy Jo. Uh, I would imagine that her um, Fire Woman's uh, seminar is not happening anymore, but uh, it's probably been postponed. So, so please check in her website and just follow her on Instagram, Sexual Empowerment. She's posting a lot of really cool things and and hosting some some neat interactive opportunities. And um, as always, please follow us on uh, Finding My Yum podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're posting updates. Uh, we'd love to connect with you. And um, please share the podcast with. Uh, let's see, 91 people this this week. Uh, and, and, and you know, there's a good uh, just excuse to connect. So share a podcast, ours, and say a hello to somebody who might need to hear it. Uh, please rate us five stars and then subscribe. Um, leave a comment. Please email us at findingmyyum at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions of future guests or topics that you'd love to hear about. Um, as always, please stay yummy and uh, please stay healthy and safe. Um, so much love to you. Until next time. <laughs>